Good morning. This is the International Power Hour. This is Jean Abshire with my colleague Cliff Staten. We are here to talk th today about Latin America. There's been a lot going on in uh, recent months when we've been off the air and a lot of developments just uh, recently. recently very, I mean, like today. <laughs> every day uh, and so we wanted to focus on those and I think we're going to start with uh, what's been going on with Mexico there's been a lot of things with NAFTA or not NAFTA the North American Free Trade Agreement which is a, a three-party agreement between the US Canada and Mexico so far <laughs> Cliff you yes, want to uh, talk about what's been it's been interesting been going on? Uh, you know uh, the president campaigned uh, against NAFTA and said it was a it was a terrible deal for the United States, and not all economists would agree with that. Some would argue it's been a good deal, others not. But nonetheless, um, if you look at NAFTA, it's been in effect since January 1st, 1995, and what has happened? It has really created a a North American market, a, a market in which businesses have settled into creating supply chains predictable, uh, stable uh, behaviors uh, in which to get their products to, to Americans, to Canadians, and to Mexicans. And so this is a huge agreement. It covers thousands and thousands of products. Uh, so it's not just dealing with small uh, one or two issues, which tends to be, if you, Gene, if you, if you listen to the president, what they've really zeroed in, in on in terms of the NAFTA, quote, renegotiations has been the really focused on automobiles, making right. of automobiles. And um, so another interesting to note, uh, if we step back a bit, uh, the president, in terms of trade deals, tends to prefer bilateral negotiations. Besides well, two parties. Right. And, and that really flies in the face of all post-World War II trade negotiations. Everything has been primarily multilateral. And if you're a member of a group, quite often you have most favored nation status, which automatically makes bilateral agreements multilateral. The president hasn't gone that way. And, and well, so partly because... Our economy today is is global. global. It's That's not right. just you know us and you know and that, some other country and us and another country. It I mean supply chains are global. Anything that's you know produced often has components in it from multiple different countries. It really is an integrated production system and an integrated marketplace. That's and right. So and that, NAFTA played a key role in creating that type of yes. integrated system that you talk about between Mexico, the United States, and Canada And that's as well. important in terms of Absolutely. Of preserving Bus businesses those. don't like the rules to change. Exactly. Uh, they, get, they get set in terms of making their products, and uh, change comes difficult, as, as President Trump is finding out. Well, it's also costly. I mean, if supply chains Absolutely. are interrupted and they have to go find um, new vendors, new suppliers, uh, that you know that creates uncertainty. Costs are going to change. Workers have to be retrained. Factories may have to be, you know, rebuilt or re, uh, re-outfitted. I mean, there's this isn't free. There's costs. I mean, literal costs involved, as well as just as you said, the uncertainty of that's of right. What's going that's on. exactly right, and that you can see this clearly in when President Trump announced on Monday that he had reached a bilateral agreement with U.S. Mexico, primarily over automobiles. Mm -hmm. Okay, so currently under NAFTA. Cars made in Mexico, the United States, and Canada have to have a 62% domestic content. In other words, 
All their parts, 62% of the parts have to come from Canada, U.S., or Mexico before they can be sold duty-free without tariffs. Uh, Taxes. In, in, the North, in the NAFTA market. So what he has done in this agreement, which he now remember this this agreement was kind of a preliminary agreement in principle there's nothing written in paper yet on paper and a legal document yet but nonetheless they're going to increase that to 75 percent which means now 75 percent of the content of a car made in Mexico US or Canada must must come from domestic producers okay uh, so, but the problem here is that this agreement was between the U.S. and Mexico. Canada has yet to be on board with this. And it's put a lot of pressure on, on Canada to come to the table, and they are at the table today. Yes. Um, the president indicated that he would like to have this agreement ready to go by Friday. You might ask, Okay, why why in the be? world? I mean, this Friday. is a major thing. Again, Absolutely. it involves thousands and thousands of items, you know, billions of dollars. Why? Why rush? Friday is especially important. when one of our one of the three parties to the agreement has been cut out, and it really has been cut out. I mean, we've had NAFTA talks going on to tweak the agreement for quite some time that involved all three countries, and then all of a sudden and we have this and announcement. Especially with Canada, those 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 mm -hmm. haven't fared too well. Right. Uh, but so why Friday, you want yeah. my ask? Well, under um, U.S. law, under the trade expansion uh, provisions given to allow the president to negotiate agreements, when he brings an agreement back to the Congress, uh, he, there's 90 days for them to approve or disapprove. Think 90 days. That leads to the end of November. In December, and what happens on December 1st, Cliff? In December, <laughs> number one, Congress goes home. Okay, right. this is a lame duck. They're not going to come back and go and discuss this. And number two, on December 1st, Lopez Obrador becomes the president of Mexico, and he may insist on renegotiating this whole thing. So he wants to get it done before this December 1st deadline. The problem is getting Canada on board, and I'm not so sure they can even get the, the legal language done by, by Friday to submit it to, submit it to, to the Congress. But it is yeah. interesting. Let me just chat a little bit about Mexican, because this deals with Mexico right. in terms of car production. Under NAFTA, car production in Mexico expanded dramatically. It brought, in many ways, cr helped create a Mexican middle class. Um, and what has happened, if you look at the impact of this, let's say this agreement is agreed to. Congress passes it. Mexico passes it. I don't know. Canada's on board. Let's say that ha actually happens. Then the, what happened is if you look at current Mexican cars being produced, this would affect about one-third of their cars. Two-thirds would meet the 75% domestic content law. Most of those are large SUVs that meet. So it's only going to affect about one-third of their production. Most of these are small cars, Hondas, Nissans, VWs, even small BMWs, that will have to increase their domestic contact. If they do not, uh, they would face this 2.5% tariff. Well, as you said earlier, this is going to involve changing um, 
the, where they get their supplies. And there are costs involved in that. It's interesting, uh, there were several, several commentators looking at, that are experts in, in, the, in the automobile industry have argued that most of those companies will probably just say, We'll just we'll just pay the two point because it's too costly to upset right. the supply chain. I've, I've seen the same kind of analysis, and I don't know that we were looking at the same and sources, but I, so I think I don't know. <laughs> so, um, so I think that's a thing. But the thing is, okay, so two point five percent. Which means the auto ultimately, are who quote pays unquote, for that? Right, that's what you I was and I say. that like, want to buy the Hondas, the small Nissans, the, the Ford Fusion, mm -hmm. which is a very popular car. All of those are that costs that price will be passed on to you and I as a consumer there. So there's costs all the way around in terms of this. Uh, and if so you're talking about, you know, a twenty-five or $30,000 car, like 2.5%, I, I will feel that. Everyone will that buys yeah. those those types of cars. Uh, so, you know, not everybody drives a big SUV. That's right. <laughs> um, it is interesting. Another part of the agreement which he announced uh, had to do with wages for those yes. working in the car industry. Get everybody in Mexico up to $16 an hour. Or, yeah, an well, hour. anyone, it says 40 40% of the cars that domestic content cars must be made by people making $16 an hour. Now, this and many, many members of Congress have really responded to see this as a real intrusion into the market, so to speak, if you're a free trader, because all of a sudden, Someone's going to come to your small factory and you're making a small part for a Ford, for a Ford car, maybe being built in Mexico, and someone's got to keep records of who's building this and what are their wages, and someone's got to monitor all this. Now, more than likely, that and that has costly a, too. Not only costly, if you can get a, a government bureaucracy to yep. monitor this and enforce it, or do you rely upon the industry's themselves to self-report, which is probably what is going to happen yeah. should this go through. Well, many people have argued that, um, you know, there are ways of manipulating who's getting $16 an hour, and uh, if you let the company self-report, uh, uh, it, it would be unenforceable. Yeah. Uh, so that's been interesting to look at. So I guess the real question is, is can this actually be implemented in the time frame that the president has set forward. Uh, it yeah. seems really, really fast. Too fast. Yeah. Members of Congress have spoken out. Many have said, first of all, let's go back to the uh, uh, trade authority that the president has. Okay, this is kind of basic international political economy. Uh, if you read the U.S. Constitution, Congress is in charge of, is, has control over interstate commerce and tariff, which is a tax, starts in the House of Representatives. So any change has to go through the Congress, okay? And when they, over the years, have allowed the president to reduce barriers to trade, they basically give him authorization for so many years, and it has to be renewed. Well, in July of this past year, they renewed the trade authorization for President Trump for NAFTA for three years, but it was for Canada, the United States, and Mexico. Now the president's coming with a bilateral mm -hmm. agreement, and many in Congress are going to say, this is illegal. 
Yeah. We can't act upon You don't have the authority to negotiate a bilateral agreement and bring that back to us because the, the, the authority you have is for a three-part. This is why they really want to get Canada on board, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Okay? Because some will say, we can't, we can't, we simply can't, uh, can't uh, 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 even entertain this. And if you notice on Monday also, the president made some reference to maybe we'll just scrap NAFTA right. and just use this in its place, especially if Canada doesn't get on board. Well, again, lots of problems with that. To under, under NAFTA, to withdraw from NAFTA takes, we have to give six months notice for that. And remember all that integrated market and all the businesses yep. that have developed over 20, 25 years under NAFTA, this is going to completely disrupt all of that. But yeah, six that months isn't <coughs> long when you're talking about change of that magnitude. And if you if we pursue this and pull out an after that also requires congressional approval because it deals with with tariffs and trade and that starts in the house. There's going to be enormous pressure from businesses put on members of representatives not to change not to get, not to dump, quote, dump NAFTA in that sense. So I don't see that happening, uh, even though the president wanted to rename this deal. Right. Uh, even though if you listen to uh, the uh, President Peña Nieto said, he still called it NAFTA. Okay. Mm -hmm. And he made it very clear that he expected Canada to be part of this particular agreement. So there's all kinds of real questions involved mm -hmm. in terms of, of not only can he get it ready by Friday, but can Congress even, if they don't get rid of NAFTA, but yet if they would take this up, you would have, in effect, two treaties, two agreements in effect at the same time. That would conflict with each other. Yeah. All kinds of That's issues that have to be worked out. Yeah. And I'm not, quite honestly, I'm not so sure uh, this new agreement will even will even pass, yeah. plain and simple. Um, there's lots of opposition uh, among Republicans, um, labor. If you listen, labor groups are uh, have been have historically been in support of changing this. Mm -hmm. But again, monitoring those those wages, uh, I, I, I'm not so sure we can actually moni really monitor those and enforce those. Uh, so. So what, what about on the Mexican side? I mean, you know, you've talked about the, the pressures in terms of the U.S. political system and, and power structures, but Peña Nieto is, is a lame duck also. Uh, it's not just, we're not just going to be dealing with the lame duck Congress in, late in the year, it's, and Peña Nieto is on his way out, as you said. Lo, pre, the new incoming president, López Obrador, will be uh, sworn in on December 1st. Uh, the Mexican presidency is very powerful, it, I mean, even if even if Peña Nieto brings this home uh, in terms of getting things approved in Mexico, uh, it, does does Lopez Obrador have to stick with it? Uh, if it has not been approved, no, he does not have to, and that's a big question. This is why the push to get this done by the end of November, because at least publicly, President Nieto has said. We're, we're going to support this if, Canada, if we can get Canada on board. We're going to go along with this. I think his, his logic was basically the small automobile manufacturers will just eat the 2.5%. And, and I think also from his perspective, and I was listening to one, listening to one commentator in Mexico City talk, is that um, 
basically the, his argument is this, if this is all we have to do to placate the United States when it comes to revisions in NAFTA, this is a win for us in that yeah. sense, okay? It's not that serious of a deal in that sense. So, so the question is, can we get it to the Mexican National Assembly and so on and have it, have it uh, um, approved by November 30th? Because once AMLO or uh, Lopez Obrador becomes president, um, who during his campaign, of course he was just elected this year mm -hmm. and he takes office on December 1st, was uh, if you listen to some of his campaign spots, sometimes he was in opposition to NAFTA, sometimes he supported it. Now, in the end, he's going to support right. NAFTA in general because, again, as we jobs. said at the very beginning, Na Mexican economies tied into the U.S. economy, which tied into the Canadian economy. They're all one big economy. Right. Mexico needs America needs the American market and the Canadian market. We need, and so they're going to bend Just as on our this. Market needs okay, Mexico so I don't Canada. think. Uh, but there's always the wild card because President Trump is not popular in Mexico. Right. We've we've said that before on, on this show. Okay, when we talked about Mexico. Well, he, I mean, he has said very provocative things. Obviously, very provocative and, and uh, I mean, insulting. Paul and and. So AMLO, I think, is what he's often called in the country, I think is going to have to kind of walk this tightrope. I want to stay in NAFTA, continue to keep the Mexican market stable and the economy growing, but I can't be seen to bow down to President Trump. And so that's going to be interesting, interesting to watch. And, and so I don't, I'm not so sure he would reject this outright. He may want to renegotiate it. Uh, but I don't, I'm not so sure that even the left-wing Lopez Obrador uh, president would, would, would actually reject this at this particular point. But again, never say never. Uh, in, yeah. in, in the world of today, uh, we've all seen where who, 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 who knows what's going to happen four months from now, three right. months from now. What about on the Canadian side? And you're more of a Latin Americanist, and I'm, I'm pushing you north here. That's fine. Uh, but what, what are the sticking points with, with Canada? Uh, the Canadians are, um, first of all, they really haven't evaluated what the effect of these domestic content laws would be on their automobile manufacturers and how this uh, wage thing would work in, term, in terms of Canada. Uh, really, wages are not probably not an issue for the U.S. and Canada because they pay higher wages anyway. Right. That's one of the reasons the cars are more expensive. So, um, but... Canada also has got agricultural interests at stake, mm -hmm. and they, of course, again, the relationship between President Trump and uh, the Prime Minister of Canada has not been um, has not been the best. It's right. been a war of words, and part of that, I think, and again, you've got as you would say, nationalist sentiments on the rise, and I think uh, Canada is in a position not. They don't want to bow down to the United States either. And if you yeah. have to remember, the last the, the, the U.S. did place tariffs on steel and yes. aluminum coming from both Mexico and the, Mexico and Canada, and both countries responded to that. Yes. So um, Trump has also threatened a 25% uh, tariff on Canadian-made cars and auto parts. Um, in addition, 
if this doesn't all come together. And that's a big threat for Canada. That's a huge threat. Yeah, that um, is uh, a huge part of. I mean, that's a that's a significant economic. And it's a threat also to U.S. consumers yeah. uh, whose car manufacturers in this country may use Canadian parts that would face yes. that huge yeah. tariff. Yeah, that would, again, raise costs. Um, analysts um, at the Toronto Dominion Bank uh, estimated that, that if Trump puts in a 25% tariff on, on these Canadian-made cars and, and auto parts, uh, that it would cost 160,000 jobs, most of them in the Ontario province of Canada. Um, so th this is... This is a serious, uh, I mean, a very, you know, serious and, you know, fundamental bread and butter thing for them. These are these are their workers, their jobs. There's lots of, as one commentator put it, uh, moving parts going on. Yeah. And, uh, you know, tomorrow things may change dramatically from what we're saying here yeah. today. But, uh, you know, I have doubts that uh, the Congress will actually approve a U.S.-Mexican agreement. Many in Congress have said Canada's got to be a part. And I think legally, given the Trade Authority Act, uh, the president's on very shaky ground submitting a, 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 an agreement just between the U.S. and Mexico. You're right. Canada it, it has to play a major role in this. But I think they're, they're very clear that they, don't, they haven't had time to look at mm -hmm. this. And, in fact, it's not publicly written anywhere yet right there's no formal legal document to actually look at and the devil is always in the details so to speak and so the canadians are going to have to wait to that before they even make a final say and th that this 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 would be okay with and them. they of course you know while the u.s has has its procedures and processes which would have to be done again yes all of this would November. have to be approved by canada and would have to and be, be approved mexico, by mexico and now in canada as well if, absolutely yeah. all so kinds of moving parts yeah. here and um, so uh until there's some document put in place i'm not you know besides just a few things we've talked about um it'll be a, a Canada's not going to respond publicly until they see that document yeah. and until they see the, the details as to whether they're going to go along with it. And they may want, okay, we'll sign, but we need to renegotiate this, this, X, and this. Z, right. Uh, so, and all of that runs up against this Friday deadline. Uh, so, yeah. again, uh, political scientists know better than make predictions, but... Uh, I'm not so sure this 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 will ever see the light of day in terms of Congress, unless Canada's on top, uh, Canada's uh, signatory to it, and uh, I don't see that happening by Friday. Yeah, it does. I think also um, have implications this whole dynamic because Canada, I think, really does feel just cut out here. Yes. Um, President Trump, you know, basically again, there were there were negotiations ongoing, and um, you know, President Trump went on the side you know, negotiated this side deal with Mexico and Canada's out in the cold. Um, and I think, and, and that's, the, the Canadian relationship has been an important one for us, partly because of economic matters, partly because of other matters, including, you know, security and defense. And I mean, there and are... And in many ways, one could argue they're our closest ally, plain and simple. Absolutely. And, you know, and political scientists talk about a few different kinds of power. There's, there's hard power, which is coercive, and there's soft power, which is, you know, working more nicely with people and, and using persuasion rather than... than coercion and 
you can use you can have and use both those forms of power but when you start using hard power coercive tactics against your allies instead of the soft power tactics that really sours the relationship in very fundamental ways and once that relationship is soured you've lost a significant amount of hard or sorry excuse me you've lost a significant amount of soft power because again that's based on being able to persuade people to want to cooperate with you and a lot of the basis for that is goodwill. So we are basically, you know, giving away some of our power if we, you know, bully and coerce our friends who are important soft power allies. Uh, and I, I just, that concerns me because, you know, the U.S. Uh, is a powerful country and we use that power to our benefit. And having a bigger, you know, more tools in our, in our power toolbox is beneficial to us. And we are at this point, you know, as I see it, especially, you know, in relation to, you know, Canada and, and other close allies on these trade issues and other issues, you know, we're just taking tools out of the toolbox and throwing them, you know, throwing them in the garbage dump. And to me, that just doesn't make sense. Like you want more tools and we are getting rid of soft power tools. Again, just, it seems like right, left and center. And this, this is, you know, thrown more tool. This this act by by cutting out Canada here has thrown more soft power tools you know, right in the garbage. Yes, yes. So. Perhaps uh, maybe it's time for, a, it's time uh, for a break. short break here. Uh, we'll come back and maybe uh, pick up with some other countries: Cuba, uh, Nicaragua. Nicaragua, and possibly Venezuela, Venezuela as well. Hi, we're the Goo Goo Dolls. We're fortunate that we can give our daughters everything they need to grow and learn. But not every child can focus on classes and play dates. Nearly 13 million kids in the U.S. face hunger. That's one in six. School lunch might be their only meal each day, and it's heartbreaking to imagine any child going to bed hungry. We're dreaming of a perfect day when kids can smile, play, and just be kids without worrying about where their next meal will come from. Feeding America is working to make that perfect day a reality. Each year, the Feeding America network of food banks rescues billions of pounds of good food that would have gone to waste. That food is given to families and children in need. Being a kid should be about doing things that make an ordinary day extraordinary. Learning to play an instrument, building a sandcastle, hosting tea parties. Hunger should never be an obstacle to growing up. You can help end childhood hunger in your community by visiting feedingamerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. Hi, I'm Danica Patrick. Watching my nieces grow, play, and learn is amazing, but not every child gets to be carefree. One in six kids in the U.S. are hungry. This breaks my heart, and it's something that Feeding America is working to change. Each year, the Feeding America network of food banks rescues billions of pounds of good food that would have gone to waste and gives it to families in need. To help, visit feedingamerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. The International Power Hour is brought to you by the International Studies Department at IU Southeast, where you can prepare for your global future. More information online at ius.edu slash international dash studies. Welcome. Welcome back to The Dog Show. Up next, we have Satchmo. Satchmo is a member of the Shelter Pet Group. That's right, a group known especially for their couch snuggling, ball chasing, face licking, and of course, companionship. Now, let's see him in action. Look how he makes eye contact with his person. That's actually known as the treat stare. 
How intuitive. And now he appears to be excitedly turning in circles. Ah, the happy dance will come in with this group. But really, the best way to know an amazing shelter pet like Satchmo is to meet one. Visit the shelterpetproject.org today. Adopt. Brought to you by Maddie's Fund, the Humane Society of the United States, and the Ad Council. Good morning. Welcome back to the International Power Hour. We have been talking about Mexico and uh, trade issues in reference to Mexico, the U.S., and Canada. Uh, we have major developments that have to happen by Friday uh, in a trade agreement that could reform NAFTA. Um, so I think in terms of the next week, if you watch, pay attention, see the Canadian reaction, yeah. is there an actual legal document that's available see the Canadian reaction, do they get on board or is it extended further? My suspicion yeah. that's what's going to happen, but I could be proven wrong there. And then also Congress's reaction. Yeah. And members of the Republican Party in particular, because many have already, have already spoken out against this particular agreement and many think tanks have said basically the agreement may actually hurt the United States mm -hmm. more than it will help. So those things are wor worth watching yeah. in the just in the next two or three days right. because uh, we missed the Friday deadline. That creates a whole new ball game in terms yeah. of the timeline, in terms of Mexico approving it and so on. Canadian negotiators are in Washington today. So, I mean, it, it is a super dynamic situation. Um, Cliff, we've also had um, developments in the in the last few months in Cuba, which we've talked about before. Why don't you tell us what has happened with Cuba? They have a new constitution, um, got a new president, of course, which we talked about last spring, um, and following that has come this new constitution. What what are the what what's in this new constitution, and what are the implications? Well, the new constitution, if we kind of back up, remember earlier this year, uh, Raul Castro stepped down as president of Cuba. Now, he's still head of the Communist Party. And Miguel Diaz-Canel became the new president, who in many ways is uh, a reformer, a Raulista, who wants to move the economy more in terms of open trade and uh, to open up the economy here. So there has been in the works they want to replace the 1976 Constitution of Cuba. And that is the primary uh, that they work from today. It presents Cuba as a communist state and its goal of international communism. By the way, you don't have that, art, that, that terminology in the new proposed Constitution. Okay, So if we look at this new proposed Constitution, now it passed the National Assembly. The process now is that it will go throughout Cuba. There will be various town meetings, mm -hmm. 7,000 or so of these town meetings where people will get to discuss it. And there will be a referendum that discussions, they th they're hoping the town meetings will end by November 15th. And then sometime in early 2019, hopefully by February, they will put it up for a referendum of vote. Okay. Uh, so they're there, and even in the National Assembly, uh, I was able to hear part of the debate in the National Assembly. There was, there was a lot of, I think it would surprise Americans how much debate there was over this particular mm -hmm. document among, uh, uh, among the folks that are in the National Assembly in What are Cuba. the most contested elements? Well, there's all kinds of, uh, of questions uh, in terms of what, what was not there. But let me come to that in just a second here. Number one, it does recognize the right to own property. This yes. is new, mm -hmm. all right? 
the right to own private property. So in addition to state-owned property and cooperative property rights, now you have private property rights recognized in, in Cuba. Okay, this, this is a pretty big deal in terms of uh, Raul and Diaz-Canel's attempt to move the economy more towards a market-based system. In and terms this has of been happening. I mean, there have been small private businesses that have developed across the years and have been permitted. Absolutely. Um, I think it was the Brookings Institution that said that there's about 600,000 um, owners and employees of these uh, small businesses. Small private businesses. Yep. And the tobacco industry has always been privatized, mm. even under Fidel Castro. Okay. Small private farms, now they sell the tobacco to the state, but nonetheless. Right. Anyway, um, yes. But that affects a lot of the people. The recognition yeah. of private property, the opening up, people can start their own businesses and things like that. that that's been in place for several years now. And once when Fidel passed, that Raul had, had more freedom to actually enact these forms. And as I've said before, in many ways, it... it with his trips to China and to Vietnam, it's a mirror of what I would call the Chinese model, mm -hmm. okay? And I, maybe I can come back to that. But the new constitution legalizes same-sex marriage. That's interesting because Diaz-Canel, when he was a provincial party leader, actually supported this and refused to close clubs that were for primarily for gays and so on. So he's, in many ways, he's kind of behind, behind this particular part of the, part of the Constitution. Uh, the judicial system uh, is moving. There's a clear statement in there that they recognize the presumption of innocence. Big deal. This is this is this is kind of like you know. Okay, wow. Okay, we're no longer going to presume you're you're guilty, and right. you have to prove your innocence. Now it's going to work the other way. At least on paper, paper. it's going to work <laughs> the other way. Okay, uh, they are creating a new position, a prime minister, uh, with, who would share pr power with the president. Uh, the way I read that, and I've listened to some interpretations of it. Uh, in many ways, the prime minister would be more of, of the everyday doing the everyday job in the governing system, whereas the president, Diaz-Canel, would be more the strategic and actually have more power in that sense. China so. actually has a similar structure. They have yes. a premier that keeps Absolutely. the wheels rolling. And, and, then, and that's why I said yeah. you really have to kind of look at what China yeah. has done because of their influence on Raul Castro initially and then on Diaz-Canel as well here. Uh, and the, some other changes, the local provinces are now going to have governors. Uh, who would be, uh, and, and there's also a section there which I've got to look at it a little more closely that would give municipalities, cities more autonomy. Uh, and uh, those folks that study Cuba really like to focus on municipal governments because that's kind of where, you know, uh, the government meets, meets the people, and the potholes in the road and so on and so Absolutely. forth. And in many ways they've been much more democratic than the Cuban, than the uh, obviously than, than the Cuban government as a whole and the historic, so giving them even more, even more autonomy here. It does reinforce one party rule. Yep. Okay. So this is kind of the Chinese model. We're going to retain Communist Party control, That's right. but we're going to try to begin to liberalize, liberalize the economy here. Yeah. Uh, so there are one, absence is that many people would like to have seen some references to free, greater freedom for the non-state media mm -hmm. 
Uh, yes, uh, most of the media is controlled and state-run, but there is a significant non-state media sector. Uh, and so giving them more freedom, more autonomy, this is conspicuously absent. Uh, and many people have complained about have complained about that. But it is, uh, in many ways, kind of a, uh, I would argue, a step in the right direction uh, in terms of, of changing, uh, of Cuba moving along towards at least opening up its economy. Yeah. And I'm a firm believer if you begin to open up the economy, eventually, I'm not saying automatically, but eventually that, that, will, that will seep into the political system as well. So I've read that um, with these, this you know, greater liberalization and open to uh, opening to you know more private ownership and private businesses, that these changes came along with some incredibly detailed regulations of these private enterprises. Like um, restaurants and guest houses have to cook food at a minimum of 70 degrees Celsius for a specific time for each food. And their child care centers have to have at least square, two square meters per child and specifics on how many attendants. And I mean, we do have, you know, obviously regulations uh, in Health our restaurants. Sure. Exactly. And child care regulations um, although those you know those tended to be developed over time and the Cubans seem to be putting them all in you think okay why are they in a constitution also yes right? that's a yes. little I mean yes those are usually state or local ordinances to right. have that having that and as I constitutional law is unusual yeah. to some extent this is where the critics of this would say well one side of your mouth saying private property, yeah. we're going to have individual businesses being able to private businesses, but at the same time, you're making the regulations so onerous that it's difficult to create, to, to keep these businesses running. And that, that is, a, that is a, a, I think, a valid criticism of it. Uh, and, and then the real question is, do you, why do you put this in a constitution, this yeah. incredible detail? And some, uh, There's also some I think a little bit of wobble room in some of those with enforcement that could open the door to you know bribery or things like that which absolutely is absolutely I a know big problem uh, when I've traveled to Cuba if you go to the paladars which are the private restaurants there is a limit they're supposed to only be able to seat so many people and I've been in a couple of them where you had 100 200 people having dinner and you think and you know this is illegal right. and i kind of asked the waiter or the, the family owner of the doesn't anybody turn you in he says oh no no that's the local party leader sitting right <laughs> over there so uh, some of this is overlooked okay yeah. uh but uh you know this whole question of of, of you know <sighs> the government wanting to free the economy but yeah. at the same time not wanting to give up too much control right. now major sectors of the economy are still controlled by the government the tourist industry major industries all run by the government and in many Slash ways run, run by the military right. uh, so all of this remains to be seen i mean clearly this is going to pass um, uh, yeah. i think most cubans it's going to pass and you it can't be amended at this point it's just kind of a vote for or against. Uh, but I think uh, you have to at least uh, take notice when they do recognize the right to private property in, in, in Cuba. And okay. the presumption of innocence. In and the presumption of innocent same-sex. I mean, there, yeah. there are things that there are There's some changes. good, there are good things in here. Yeah. Uh, you know, the real question is, is when is the political system going to open up? Um, 
and maybe yeah. that we can talk about that another day as well. Yeah. So, absolutely, interesting. So, another uh, big hot spot that we've seen a lot in the news in, in recent uh, weeks and months is, is Nicaragua, and we've seen a lot of violence there. We talked about that uh, early in the summer uh, before we took our break. Uh, what's What's been going on with Nicaragua? Well, uh, this is a country that's very dear to my heart. I get very emotional over this. But um, if you had gone to Nicaragua prior to April, there were many tourists. There was no gang violence. It was a comfortable, it was the fastest growing economy in all of Central America. And then April 18th, the riots start. Uh, and all of this, technically, if you just read the news, this started because uh, President Ortega, a uh, revolutionary hero, uh, had basically raised, uh, had was lowering Social Security benefits for elderly Nicaraguans and was raising taxes on businesses to help pay for that. Now, much of that was due to the economy oil coming, the lack of oil coming from Venezuela, so their resources were less, and, but Ortega failed to talk to the business community about this. In addition, uh, so students began peaceful protests, and the response, which really stunned a lot of people, and myself included, uh, they met, was met with violence. And so it's kind of spiraled out of control since that time on a daily basis of where you have peaceful riders being shot by paramilitary groups uh, and local police, many people being detained and put in prison for a day, a day or two, and then released, and no charges or anything brought upon them. And so uh, the question is, okay, was this really over? Social Security tax increase, yeah. uh, and so, I, and obviously, it's much deeper than that. Okay, so you know, how do you explain what's going on, and is what's in store in the future here? Yeah. Uh, you have to remember uh, when I look at when my book came out in 2010 about Nicaragua, I was cautiously optimistic. You had had a country that had gone from. 1984, electing a Sandinista leader. 1990, electing Violeta Chamorro, who was not a, par a party. 1996, electing Ar Arnaldo Aleman from the Liberal Party. 2001, Jose Bolaños from the Liberal Party, although he hated Aleman. And then 2006, Ortega's elected. So you look at that from a democratic standpoint, peaceful transitions, one party to uh, different parties being elected and you're, looks you're very hopeful. Yeah, I mean, that's absolutely. one of the things we look for in terms of yep. is this country moving in a democratic uh, way. But there were underlying problems that if you, if you look closely, and some of it had to do initially by the even 94 and 95 with Ortega basically coming to dominate the FSLN, the Sandinista party, mm -hmm. uh, and cutting out many who tried to oppose him to actually run for president, and uh, Ortega controlling the Sandinista unions through patron-client relations. And there was a split in 94-95. Some Sandinistas left the party and created their own party but for fear that you're getting this cult of personality, this Danielismo within the party. This was kind of a sign that, okay, 
what does this portend for the future, okay? Yeah. And if you look today, he still dominates the Sandinista party, okay? So what then happened then, the Sandinistas, if you don't know this, are the single largest party, but they're still a minority party. The opposition to the Sandinista party I is divided, okay? And it takes a, a, a large alliance to actually defeat them. Under the old Constitution, the 1984 Constitution, you had to get 45% of the vote to win the presidency. The Sandinistas could never get 45%, mm. okay, even though they're the largest party. And typically then you'd have, to, if you don't get, you'd have a runoff between the top two candidates, and then the, uh, the opposition would unite and defeat the Sandinistas. That's what happened in, in 96 and in 2001. Well, Aliman, Arnardo Aliman, got into some uh, trouble, corruption tr tr problems, but he worked a deal with Ortega, and I called El Pacto, so to speak, in which they said, "Okay, we're going to change the constitution and reduce to 35. All you need is 35 percent to win the presidency. Mm -hmm. Plus." Outgoing presidents are automatically for life members of the National Assembly who can't be prosecuted in court. Oh, sweet deal. So they renegotiated this. Now, along comes 2006, the Sandinistas get 37% of the vote, and Daniel Ortega Damn. doesn't face a runoff, and he wins the election. Again, he's reelected in 2011. He packed the Supreme Court to get it to reinterpret the Constitution to allow him to run for consecutive terms. I think you see what's happening here. Yeah. Then in 2016, he runs again. And what really rankled many people is his wife is now the vice president. And many people see her as, oh, what are you doing here? This is a dynasty. Okay. So I think you see what's happening. He was able to pack the Supreme Court. Sandinistas control the courts, they control the legislative, they control the, the Supreme Electoral Council, which is the, the council that runs all the elections. And so the so institutions, the institutions have been eroded. Yeah. And I'm an institutionalist at heart. Without strong institutions, you can't have strong government, you can't have democracy. And this is, to me, this is what happened. And also, he, he has made this unholy alliance with business and the business council called COSEP, in which um, basically for many years, Ortega said, businesses, you go about your, you make your money, do this and that, but um, don't intervene in politics. Well, with this tax on businesses, they stepped in, have began tremendous opposition. So in many ways, this, this tension between the business sector and the Sandinistas it goes all the way back to the revolutionary years. Right. So I would argue all of this is under the surface, and it kind of, the, the, the riots the, in April when the Social Security taxes were raised have since been rescinded. But nonetheless, this kind of brought all this forward. And the violence, hundreds dead, um, um, and uh, thousands detained, yeah. at least to some of the Nicaraguan human rights record, and... Where is the end of this? I'm not so and sure. And some maybe disappeared. I mean, de being detained is, is not necessarily good. It's bad. Um, but being disappeared, where you just b essentially vanish and no one knows where you are, your family can't find you, 
may never see you again. That's that's a really disturbing thing in terms of human rights. And, and so where do we go from that. here? I'm not sure. Most people have called for Ortega to call early elections next year. He has been reluctant to do so. The violence continues. Uh, uh, the heart of the opposition is in Messiah. It's a beautiful, beautiful little town. The irony is that's where the Sandinista revolution began in Messiah. Well, so. That's ironic. Well, let's take a quick break here, and the International Power Hour will be right back. The International Power Hour is brought to you by the Department of Political Science at IU Southeast, studying power in all its forms and places, offering multiple tracks in political science and public administration. More information online at ius.edu slash political science. Welcome back to The Cat Show. Up next, we have Nico. Nico is a member of the Shelter Pet Group. That's right, a group known especially for their sunspot sleeping, ball chasing, leg rubbing, and of course, companionship. Just look how she struts. It's like she owns the place. And see how she curls up and cuddles her person. The pitch on her purring is simply perfect. Nice one. Fantastic cat. But really the best way to know an amazing shelter pet like Nico is to meet one. Visit theshelterpetproject.org today. Adopt. Brought to you by Maddie's Fund, the Humane Society of the United States, and the Ad Council. No word in the English language is less convincing than probably. Are you sure we should get matching tattoos on our first date? Sure. Um, we'll probably stay together. Probably? <laughs> it's been 23 minutes since I ate. I can probably swim. Uh, you should wait 30 minutes. Mm, okay, now tell me what to do. Cannonball! Cramp! Oh, I have a cramp. I can probably hit the green from here. Probably. Can I get a mulligan? Ready to go? Hey, are you sure you're okay to drive? Yeah, I'm pretty sober. Yeah, I'm probably okay. Probably okay isn't okay, especially when it comes to drinking and driving. If you're drinking, call a cab, a car, or a friend. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. Welcome back to the International Power Hour. This is Jean Ampshire. I'm here with my colleague Cliff Staten, and we've been talking about Latin America. And now we are going to turn to another uh, Latin American country that's been in the news a lot um, just in the last couple of weeks, Venezuela. We've talked about them before. They're having a uh, economic crisis connected to, um, you know, issues with the government. The economic situation is really severe. We've, I mean, we've talked about you know, people fleeing the country, but we've had a lot of new developments recently um, that that certainly don't seem to be, um, you know, improving chances for people in Venezuela to have a have a great life. It seems like uh, there's just more more tensions, more problems, more. Um, poverty. So yes. what's going on there? In essence, the economy has collapsed, yeah. um, to put it in very simple terms. Uh, Venezuela, as you may or may not know, is a, is a, its economy is based on oil. It has the world's largest <coughs> oil reserves, does yes, it not? Yes, it does. Yeah. Yes, it does. And, um, and it's a, lar a large exporter of oil to the United States. Now, Venezuelan crude is a very heavy oil, but nonetheless, a large exporter of oil, if the price is high, Venezuela grows and everyone benefits. If the price collapses, which it did under the Maduro administration, 
everyone loses in that sense. Um, uh, the problem with Venezuela is it, it's never um, uh, taken its economy beyond oil, mm -hmm. diversified its economy. And over the years, as I teach, if I teach Latin, this class, in Latin, if I teach Venezuela and Latin America and all Latin American countries, I talk a lot about patron-client relationships. The Venezuelan oil, it's, it's a state-run oil company. And so whoever's running the government uses it patronage purposes to pay off groups that support it. And also, of course, you, you had in the 90s, Hugo Chavez come to power in 1999, uh, left-wing, man-of-the-people, populist, who benefited from high oil prices. And he could filter a lot of social benefit programs mm -hmm. to the poor in Venezuela and was making a real impact in that sense, okay? Well, Chavez dies, and his... Now, Chavez was very charismatic, okay, mm -hmm. and had a lot of support, okay? Maduro, his successor, not very charismatic, and within the third year of his, third or fourth year of his, the oil prices collapsed. He could no longer offer the programs. Which is a function of world markets, right? I mean, it's not... I Absolutely. Mean, some Absolutely. of it can be management. Of some of it was mismanagement. Yeah, right. There's no doubt about that. He put his own people running not only in the military but also in the, in the oil sector and they really quite honestly didn't know what they were doing yeah. and they mis mismanaged it. So but a lot of it is, is the global, the global market markets, of oil, yep. plain and simple. Uh, so he lost all of his ability to pay off to, for redistributed programs downward. He became more and more authoritarian. He actually, um, the old National Assembly was done away with. He created his own National Assembly where his party had a majority, completely illegal, and nonetheless, that's, that's the way he's operated. Violence, there were demonstrations, obviously growing demonstrations against Venezuela and against, the, against the, the, uh, Maduro and his party. And ultimately, the violence has spread. Um, and all of this ultimately led to the collapse, collapse of the economy, the government spending way too much money. And uh, corruption, of course, comes along with that. Um, currency completely uh, 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 devalued and ultimately collapsing. Yeah. Inflation, Insane. I've seen estimates. Uh, I think you've seen the estimates as well. I mean, can you imagine 14,000% inflation? Well, no. and on track to become 1 million percent inflation, which is just like, yeah. I mean, that's, I can't. This is hyperinflation. Yeah, that's hyper, hyper. And so. Like, I don't know if there's a word for that when you're talking numbers that Basically, the currency has become worthless. Absolutely worthless. Uh, so yeah. ultimately, yeah. Venezuelans are fleeing the country, yeah. going to Colombia, going to Brazil. There have been incidences on the border with Brazil where the Brazilian yes. police have met them with force. And Brazilians themselves, you can talk about immigration issues, yep. uh, ha have have resisted bringing some the, the Colombians have more, taken many of them Brazilian in Brazilian forces were sent to the border yesterday yes actually. so you've got Ecuador a lot of also, a lot of conflict yeah. in that area and it looks like Maduro is not willing to to give up I the know. ship yet uh, yeah. it is interesting he does still controls the military and a lot of that I discovered is that he gives the military they get special preference on exchange rates they get a 10 to 1 rate when it should be about 40,000 to 1 so yeah, uh, 
Uh, they they get and so they can purchase food for their yeah. families and the military is still at this point remains loyal to Maduro and if they turn against Maduro then then the end the end will come will will happen rather quickly here. Yeah, it's extreme. Um, the actions that were taken uh, within the last week or so uh, devalued the currency by ninety five percent, which means if somebody went to bed with you know a hundred whatever's in their tucked in their mattress by the time they got up in the morning it was worth five mm -hmm. um and that i mean that wipes out people's savings it wipes out the value of their paychecks it's just truly devastating on a humanitarian level and you've got u.s-led sanctions uh in terms of venezuela not able to get funds from the imf the world bank uh, to try to show to to uh stabilize uh yeah. the venezuelan currency so um I, it, it looks like Maduro's days are numbered. It's just a question of when. It'll be a, still a hard hole to dig out of when, even when he's gone. Absolutely. It will take years for uh, the OAS and the U.S. to come in or whomever and, and help rebuild the Venezuelan economy. Well, it looks like we're out of time. Um, I'd like to thank you for listening. You can uh, get this or other uh, episodes of the International Power Hour on our uh, website, on iTunes, Stitcher. You can follow us on our Facebook page. Next week, we're going to be talking with a local immigration uh, person who, who works on immigration issues, um, get, the, get a little local perspective on things. But I'd, like, I'd like to shout out to one of our students in Guatemala, okay. Catherine Lee, who yep. played a, a big role, she and her organization, in terms of uh, the volcano victims yep. uh, in Guatemala. Good for her. Yep. Maybe we can talk about that another day. You bet. I hope. Thank you for listening. This is the International Power Hour.